Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Severn Film. Severn's Black Friday sale begins at midnight, November 25th, with eight new releases guaranteed to stiffen your stocking. First, there's Dario Argento's Four Flies on Gray Velvet in deluxe limited edition four-disc UHD Blu-ray CD set that includes the director's cut. Then there's Argento's rarely seen Five Days. And for the Alex de la Iglesia fans, check out the insane sci-fi gore debut, Action Mutante. Five more exclusive releases plus 50% off nearly all catalog titles from Black Friday through Cyber Monday only at SeverinFilms.com. For over 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Cauldron Films, Arrow, Synapse, Severin, Mondo Macabro, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operator small business choice you have been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com and visit our sister company, Cauldron-Films.com. P.S. All orders are shipped in a box, and that is DiabolicDVD.com, D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. Hello and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host Rebecca McKendry and with me is Elric Kane. It is almost Thanksgiving, sir. Or I guess when this airs, it is Thanksgiving. It will be Thanksgiving and we will be ready to serve up some delightful dishes. Well done, because we saw the menu. Why not just jump right right in in tonight? We're just going for it tonight. Yeah, I have a few titles. Um, You've got six kids at home. You know, let's just let's rock and roll. Um, So yeah, last Friday night or Saturday, I have no sense of time. Elric and I head to our normal haunt, the AMC 16 of Burbank to check out the menu. I've been so excited to see this one just because everyone had told me that it's like everything that I love in the world where it's like this mystery vein to it. And they were right. This is, I loved this. It it, it was an utter blast. It, it, again, I luckily didn't see the trailer. I saw the very start of the trailer and then stopped and just assumed, oh, it's a big cannibal thing. <laughs> That's all that was in my brain from the- That's everybody. Yeah, but yeah. but I was very relieved. And this isn't a spoiler. To, That's not the kind of movie this is. This mm-hmm. is a very, very classy, very well-written, very sharp, dark satire funny but also disturbing like there's also Mm -hmm. disturbing intense things in this uh anna taylor joy and ray fines are like very well matched as a kind of opposing forces of this movie nicholas holt's very funny john lugazimo is fantastic i I read something that he based his character on who was it oh it was somebody he's worked with on like some big movie he said it was somebody he doesn't like and he was like i basically was the actor of somebody i'd actually i can't remember who it was (laughs) but you know this was a really smart movie yeah, this one for me, um, what I actually said to Elric as we were leaving the theater. So if you've listened to any of our shows, you know, I love the movies where it's like a group of people are put into a room and you have to figure out why you're there and we're going to 
do something every 20 minutes until you figure it out. And that is ultimately kind of the subgenre that this fits into, but it is so much smarter and so much more clever than most of those films. Um, and I love those films. So this really was kind of that, like um, the the kind of escape room puzzle of it, but it goes so much past that. Yeah, they, I think the part of the reason is it doesn't, that's it doesn't allow itself to just become a how do we get out of here yep. it kind of removes that as a possibility in some ways and forces it to become more like why are you here and i th- yes. so i think that it, that's the kind of key difference and i don't want to say much more about it except that we mm-hmm. both think this is one of the year's best movies period yeah uh so go check it out while you while it's still fresh in theaters and and it it was much better than i thought it would be it was like i i mm-hmm. thought it would be solid but it was so much funnier in that dark wit way uh that just i wasn't expecting that and i would recommend seeing this in theaters because there was something really communal about it like there was something really fun about seeing it elric and i saw it like opening weekend in a packed house at like primetime slot and it was really crowded theater and it was just phenomenal to hear the snickers the chuckles the gasps and everything like that like it's it's the reason that you know it feels good to cry in a place like yeah. this <laughs> heartbreak um, feels it, good uh heartbreak that's it heartbreak good. feels good it's also a nice time because the very first time just before we kind of started this show, when we first started the Patreon, the very first one I was ever on with you was 1% Har. And this, yes. this fits perfectly into this is 1% the rich har. 1%ers. So, right. so yep. that's a nice little tie up as we're closing out our year um, of, of movie going. So great movie. Yes, great movie. Please see it while it's in theaters. And we, sometime this weekend, um, we had to pick. We only had one spare night this weekend, and we had to pick between Bones and All in the menu. And we went with the menu just because it was doing a wider release. But now Bones and All, um, which was doing limited, is going wider. And so I'm we're hopeful. Try to, I have a good feeling yeah. about that. I think it's, it's going to be really good. Yeah, I've seen it already popping up on like some best of lists, and I just saw it is now opening up at um, a much wider swath of Los Angeles, not just the Grove. Um, so let's go try to check it out this weekend. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple left. I think I have about three films that I know of that I need to see before we rock those top tens in our mm-hmm. final episode. Um, and but there's always there's always ones that you forget came out this year, you know. So, but those yeah. are the biggies. And what a year for horror. So, uh, what about our buddy uh, from? Um, is it what part of the world? <laughs> I was going to say that Indonesia. Indonesia. Yeah, I, was about to say, yeah. I was about to screw it up and say Thailand or something. But uh, our yeah. one of the most talented working directors out there, uh, Joko Anwar, and his new uh, Satan Slave Communion. Yes. So this is, um, I love the history of Satan Slaves as an entire franchise. Mm -hmm. So there is, this is based on a 1980s, I want to say film. I think the first one is Um, 80 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And and if you want to see that, it's actually quite fun. It's got some really interesting stuff to it. I believe Severin put out the DVD of that original. Shutter has it on. Oh, Shutter has it as well. Yeah. It's super fascinating. And then he did a I'll call it a remake but it's kind of like an additional thing like it goes different places in 2017 a James um, Wan-esque 
movie, yeah. your version of it's it. It's much you know? bigger. It's got giant scares. It goes a lot of really cool places. And then this is the sequel to that 2017 reboot. Um, and so it's a fun history with this franchise anyway. This one, admittedly, I did not necessarily understand how it was connected at the front. I was kind of like, that looks like the same kids. But I didn't understand the giant tower in the middle of the field and where they're living. Like it's adjacent to the city, but it's pastoral, but it's like a high rise in the middle of a field. And honestly, as soon as the scare started, I was like, I don't fucking care. I don't care where we are. Um, It just, and that elevator scene was just brilliant. And then from there, it just kept going. I also did not quite get what kicked off the ghosts and the haunting in this one. I was like, was it the elevator? Was there a particular catalyst that I missed somewhere? I don't fucking care. Once it was going, it was just scare after scare and it was scare sequences and they were just so well orchestrated. I forgot about whatever parts of the plot I was missing. Yeah, I think this one's um, less effective emotionally because there's mm-hmm. so many characters that because they're now it's like the same family have now left their home, moved into this apartment building in the middle of nowhere. Probably I'm assuming that's saying something about, you know, not being able to afford communal housing or having to live in communal housing. They mm-hmm. they get there and then weird things start happening. Uh, still connected to the first, but again, I didn't see the first one close enough to this to pick it all up. But stuff about their mom, the the record album. I think it was basically like the grandkids. I thought, or like the kids of her have, and they were living in the communal housing because they thought it would be safer with all the people. Yeah, around. and it's still those two people who are at the end of Satan Slaves that mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the movie. Remember, it ended and had two people yeah. in the apartment dancing. I think they are part of this in a tangential way and it, it, there's a lot of that that kind of some of it goes over your head but it does it doesn't really matter because it's creepy i mean there is a sequence in this just a it's not a set piece like some of the good scares but it's just early on one of the kid the uh, people have died then the elevator has crashed people have died and their bodies are laid out in the their apartments overnight before because there's gonna be a flood in the town and the sec- kind of a, not, he's not a security guard, but he's like that almost like the guy's just looking after things. Asks this young kid to help him, and this kid has to go from room to room with this little flashlight to see the way these bodies are just laid out. And of course, at some point, you know, the heads turn, and it's just a great setup for a horror movie. The way they go room to room, and it's creepy. And there, there's two or three really good set pieces in this film. And so much of the scares in this, I was almost inspired by because they relied on the fact that there was this crazy downpour and that the lights were out. So it was happening either in pitch black, in many cases with a flashlight, in some cases with a lantern, and in one particular amazing scare, a match. Um, And so a chunk of the film is basically in darkness with this source lighting being kind of the motivation going back and forth of how the scares are being crafted out. Um, And it's just really impressive. Like that is the one thing that this guy always does. I feel kind of like the same way that I did about Impetigore and Queen of Black Magic, where I'm like, okay, plot's a little wonky for me, but I don't fucking care because these scare sequences in every single one of them just completely remove me from whatever um problems i'm having with logic i think he only wrote queen of black, queen Mag- of black uh, but, magic but i'm with you completely the, the opening again we've talked about it before the opening of impedigore is like just really one of the best openings in a recent movie oh my it's gosh so yeah. tense and, you know 
And that's the thing is I can't even remember how that opening scene of Empedagore relates yeah. to the movie itself. I have no recollection of it, but that opening scene, I could go like moment by moment because it was so. Effective. Yeah, it's an urban opening and then she gets some message and has to go to pastoral for the rest of the movie, which is less, a little less interesting. Still some great stuff. Yeah. But no matter what, Jocko is still to me one of the exciting voices. Uh, this is a really entertaining movie. Definitely watch the first one first because it's a, it's mm-hmm. a, I do think the first one's a modern like masterpiece. And then this one's just a really solid interesting crazy horror film um yeah but yeah i'm glad i'm glad we both got to see that one yeah it is on shutter right now and i will continue watching anything jocko anwar totally. turns out he is really i mean indonesia has always had some really tight horror films even like historically going back indonesia's always had a really interesting voice in horror but he is really bringing it to a whole nother level that multiple films are now going global with him um producing them or writing yeah, which them. is great um, you know it's such a yeah. good sign to see that and to mm-hmm. see how horror scares are universal like the scary parts but but within each scare there's like these little cultural specific things that are creepy or new or original i love that what so yeah in this one um one of the cultural things that they really used well was that after the people died they did this whole kind of shroud wrapping thing so they're wrapped really tightly in these like white um cloths almost mummy like and then they put these little gauze strips up their nose and so even in pitch blackness you can still see those bodies and you can see which ways their noses are pointing because of those white cotton that they put up there and i have no idea what the cotton is for or why that was a thing but they did it with all the bodies so i assume it's culturally significant and it was wild yeah so, no yeah. that's it's really um, fun that part really well used so i'm gonna take us to germany for a sec okay um for but this thing is very international i think that it's it's kind of german parent company um but then it gets really international Mm -hmm. this has been um one of the top tens on netflix all week and so i was like okay y'all i'm in um and this is 1899 this is a new limited series run on netflix from the same company that made dark and i fucking loved dark like that was just a tight little um murder mystery with supernatural tones for me 19 or 1899 um even though that it is the same german company it's not uh, chunks of this are in variety of different languages which i'll talk about in a sec um and so the whole setup of this is it gets way trippy it is set on a passenger ship like a massive massive steamship in 1899 and it is on uh, en route from europe to New York City. And it is populated with characters from all different countries. There's three different class systems on board. And you spend most of the time with like the first class clientele of the ship. But then you're also spending a lot of time with the um, the third class who are shoved in there. It just, it looks like a prison camp and most of them are Dutch. Um, and so it's very much like immigrants coming over to the US. And then even within the first and second class passengers, it's, you know, some of them speak German or Polish or only Spanish or Portuguese. Um, And then some can speak multiple languages, like the captain is uh, German, but he speaks English. And our main protagonist is English um, from Britain. And uh, so it's all about these, these people who are traveling across seas. While they are en route, another steamship 
big, massive steamship, thousands of passengers and crew went missing four months ago. And so they're all kind of a chatter about this steamship that went missing during this exact same route and what could have happened to it. And they're like halfway across the Atlantic. And all of a sudden they start getting distress signals from the ship named the Prometheus that has been missing for four months. And so the captain's like, you know what, we got to investigate this, see if there's any survivors. They pull up to the ship And some shit has gone down on that ship. Think like event horizon level of like stuff in disarray. There's blood, it's chaos. And the only thing that they find is one boy still alive who is way too like catatonic to speak. They take him back to their ship and they're like, okay, we don't know what to do. They, they um, send a, what do you call it? A wire to the company who owns the Prometheus and they only send back two words, sink ship. And so then the captain's like, why do they, this is like a massive, like huge build and there's nothing wrong with the ship. Don't they want to know what happened to everybody? Why don't they want their ship? They're asking us to sink it. And so the captain becomes kind of obsessed with it all the while on the ship. Um, weird stuff starts happening. They start having these kind of time occurrences. Um, Things start getting really weird and trippy. And that's where I'll leave is that it's, and this is all, that was all within kind of the first um, episode is that it just, you know, they find the ship. It's very kind of event horizon and it's set up. And then it gets real fucking weird from there. Um, What I love about this so much is it feels huge. It is all pomp and splendor of cinema where it is this massive set and these massive, literally thousands of people um, are on this ship. So you feel all of it. You're following around all these different protagonists. The sets are amazing. It feels huge. Costumes are huge because it's 1899. So we're at like Pete Gibson girl time period. So it's these lavish costumes. They soundtrack that shit with 1970s classic rock. Mm. Um, So you're listening to like Jefferson Airplane sing White Rabbit. And the second uh, episode used a lot of deep purple. Mm. Um, And so it's just this really bold choice to it. It's got this fucked up, dark Alice in Wonderland trippiness to it, which I'm really enjoying. So I am five episodes in on this and I am literally going to leave the show tonight and go keep watching. There's only six or... Eight. Oh, eight. eight. Okay. Yeah, I almost watched the first one. I think I watched the first minute, and then I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to show right now. And I figured you might be able to tell me uh, if it's worthwhile. Yeah. So I'll... it's definitely worth okay. it. I will say, if you can, there is a dubbed version, and the dub is cool. If you can't read, like I definitely watched one of the episodes while I was jogging earlier tonight. In which case, I turned on the dub because I can't read and jog at the same time. But because part of the plot is built out of all of these people being so many different nationalities and not having a clue what anybody else on the ship is saying, it really is way more effective if you turn off the dub and turn on the subtitle because um, you actually lose chunks of the plot when you're listening to the dub because so much of the plot is built out of this person's talking to me, but I don't know what they're saying. And now I turn and say something to this person who doesn't know what I'm saying. And when everyone's speaking English, that confusion does not make sense. Um, And so you kind of need that element of not understanding anybody else on the ship um, to go with it. So. Yeah, so it's way more effective with the dub off and just watching subtitles, but I get it. I'm I'm a realist as well, and there are moments that I'm like, no, I can't read right now. So, yeah. Well, and that is 18.99 on Netflix just dropped this week. Well, now that she got that call me stuff out of the way, for you Americans, I got an American movie called Where Where Santa fucks shit up. Um, um they're not communists. I know. I'm that's, that's <laughs> the joke. 
if it's Panta, fuck shit up. Uh, Let's do it. No, no, yeah. So Violent Night uh, from uh, one of the writers' uh, friend of the show, Josh Miller. Uh, Josh Miller! Directed by Tommy Workola, who I looked him up, and he is no stranger to things that happen in snow, because he did Dead Snow 1 and 2, and Hansel and Gretel, whatever Hunters, uh, whatever that movie was. Uh, but I will also quickly plug that um, a huge chunk, because I shot uh, my new film, Elevator Game in Winnipeg, a lot of my cast and crew are involved in Violent Night as oh, well. Nice. So go Winnipegians. Uh, yeah, I won't say too much because I don't want to ruin anything. But uh, David Harbour, it's basically, I mean, a short version, I'd call this Bad Santa Die Hard because it's got, he starts off, it's kind of David Harbour is like, you know, feels like a bad Santa character. He's in a bar, he's drinking too much and they're making jokes about Christmas and you really think you're watching a bad Santa. And I am going to spoil this because I, I it's in the, tra- you'll everyone will know this. It's in the first couple of minutes. I didn't know it because I went to this movie blind, but he is actually Santa. And that, that was a surprise. Like I'm watching this movie guy. Oh, he's like bad Santa in the first minute. He's, and then he, he's, you know, he's going to puke on, on the ground kind of vibe. And then he goes upstairs and actually gets on, on the reindeer. And I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty funny uh but that's right in the opening uh and he gets into a situation where basically you're in this one percenter house like a very wealthy beverly d'angelo which is also a christmas reference because she is the uh wife uh, griswold wife in national lampoon's christmas, christmas yeah. vacation uh, yeah. and also john Leguizimo will come into the story too um when we just talked about him uh but it's basically this family there's an estranged couple who are whose daughter is very sweet and kind of torn between them on christmas they're all going to the the rich matriarch's uh, home and tensions are high. She's extremely rich. And what happens is the uh, servants of this very fancy family take over this place, a la, a la diehard situation. Everything's on lockdown and it just happens to all go down as Santa is stuck in the building uh, as he's delivering. He's like, oh, mother fuck. Now, now the key to this movie, the reason why this movie is really good is because it has, you know, the violence and all that's kick ass. It's the company who did like the John Wick action stuff. So they know how to pull off action mm-hmm. sequences and it's more of an action. It's not a horror film as much as an action kind of thing, but, um, but it has a lot of heart because it's really about a Santa who is like over Christmas burned out. Not sure how much time left he's going to have. Uh, and through the actions of this has to kind of find that spirit again. And it, and, and it's got some pretty kick-ass stuff. People are going to have a lot of fun. This is a movie that will j- please crowds big time. Uh, so that is violent night. Uh, and David Harbour, it's like, you know, we've all been watching Stranger Things these last, you know, few years. It's really fun to see him in this role. So uh, good job, guy, Josh Miller. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I will kick it to, um, I, that's all of the stuff that I watched this week because I spent most of my time watching 1899. Yeah, it sounds like it. I... I will take it to my graphic novel for the week. This one just came out in September. It's taken me a couple of weeks to get to it, but I am super excited to finally get to read the last book you'll ever read, um, which is just a kick-ass title to begin with. This is the new one from Colin Bunn, who has been on the show before, um, and this was just released from Vault. I have really been digging the stuff that Vault's been doing. They just came out of the woodwork. I swear it was during the pandemic mm. like that I really started paying attention to them. But they did the autumnal and the plot was like their really the tight haunted really house film. Yeah, so Vault's been really just kind of churning out the hits for me. They've got a couple of sci-fi ones that I've dug as well. Um, so in this one, our, our protagonist is this woman named um, Olivia Cade. And Olivia Cade has written the book, this book um, called Seder. And the movie opens on her book tour, right at the start of her book tour. And what you quickly realize is that her book 
is um, kind of manifesto like it's like a heady manifesto. But supposedly everyone who reads it basically goes insane. Like they immediately become like hyper violent. Um, and she she keeps insisting, no, it's not the people who are reading my book that are becoming hyper violent. It's everyone. And that's what I wrote the book about. Her manifesto, the um, Seder, is about how society is kind of awakening um, and that people are becoming hyper violent that are, are kind of overall kind of society is collapsing and people are just giving way to their wild sides and everyone is becoming hyperviolent. And as she is going around promoting this book, people are becoming hyperviolent and there's all of these deaths, there's all of this increase in crime. And specifically, there are people who are out to kill her thinking that all of this is happening because she wrote this book. And she's very much like, no, no, I'm just observing and I'm just kind of proceeding what became a much bigger thing. Um, and so as she's going through her book tour, all these people are trying to kill her um, very much like showing up, screaming death to the prophet. They keep calling her a prophet because she's prophesized this kind of downfall of society. And then they're also screaming the the very kind of mysterious phrase must feed the wildling. Mm -hmm. And um, so she hires a security guard and the, she, her one rule is because she doesn't know what she's created. The security guard is not allowed to read the book. So it's from her perspective and then also the security guard who has been hired to follow her on this book tour as society is basically seeing this massive uptick in violence and everything is falling apart. So it really kind of opens the question of did the book cause the violence or did she just foretell it? And you get the feeling that it's leading up to something really huge. Mm. Um, this one, I had a blast with it just because it really brought notes of um uh, Mouth of Madness for me, mixed with, oh gosh, what is the Tibor Takis movie about the um, I Madman? Yeah, I Madman. Um, so yeah, and it's got it's got um, a noir element to it as well. With her, she's very kind of femme fatale, bringing in the bodyguard to defend her, but she can really kind of defend herself, and she's really smart. This was not um, kind of a perfect read for me. I won't say it's the. It, it would probably be in my top ten of the year though. So this was still um, a really tight one. I didn't connect with the characters quite as much as I have on some of Cullen's other work, but this, I loved the plot. I love the setup and I love the idea of the book that is either prophesizing the fall of society or maybe causing it. So mm. yeah, this um, new from Vault, the last book you'll ever read. Oh, and by the way, the art in this, that may be one of my faves of the year. The art was like fucking phenomenal, mm. really sexy. Cool. Um, okay, I'll hit you with a couple uh, smaller, uh, just slightly smaller movies that have come out this year that you might, dig uh the passenger i think you'd like this one you talked about significant other on the patreon show recently mm -hmm. this has a little bit of that in terms of the creature thing so this is from spain um there's an ex matador he's like a burned out matador he's got one eye and he's like very much a loner kind of guy who now is trying to uh afford the only way he can pay for pay the rent is he has this like little bus and he runs it as a uh a ver their version of uber but like long distance and he's in spain he's going to transport a few people uh a ways i think there's uh two two different women and one of them has their estranged daughter with her and the tensions are high he's still from a different era so he's kind of misogynistic and everything he says and 
he's continually being called on it by these passengers as they're traveling along it, there's a setup that there is an alien has uh, uh, some sort of being has crashed and has taken a, in the kind of the cold open has a quick death scene that happens where somebody's murdered anyway it becomes a kind of bonkers once basically the passenger as it's called the passenger catches up to them it becomes a very playful over the top it's mostly this guy and the younger daughter having to team up to try to survive a body shifting hidden-esque uh creature and some of the moves and some of the set pieces are actually really fun you know it's lowish budget but there's moments where i was like oh this is really badass the way they're pulling things off it reminded me probably because it's spanish of de iglesias like you couldn't you couldn't get away because it kind of has that humor it kind i wouldn't be surprised if i read up that it's somebody who works with them or something mm-hmm. um but but i think this is kind of under the radar this was on amazon prime for a few bucks and i just saw that I, I saw that it was a 2022 movie and i was like oh okay i haven't seen this one and i actually liked it i thought it was quite fun so if you're into his kind of movies i think you'd probably dig the vibe of this one um and there's actually some pretty cool carnage throughout and effects um that one's fun and then the other one i watched just a couple nights ago it was a, a new film on hulu uh called matriarch um directed by ben steiner i'd seen the cover art of this and wasn't interested but I'm glad I watch it. It basically, you know, sometimes there's casting. There's a lead in this. I, this thing I, I do try to point out to people sometimes that you can have the most unlikable lead ever in a movie. But to do that, you have to have a very likable actor. If you cast an, a somewhat unlikable, I don't mean the actor is necessarily unlikable in real life, but if they come off as unlikable and you give them a night, it can be tough. And, and and that was the case for me in this one. At the start of this movie, you have this woman who's kind of on a downward spiral and she's drinking and taking a lot of drugs. And she basically in her life, she's kind of a moderate, you know, she she's pretty high up at her work, but she keep her reactions don't make a lot of sense while you're watching the first few minutes of the film. And she overdoses. And then this black goo kind of comes out of nowhere and kind of goes inside her and she wakes up. Then it, then you basically find out she's been estranged for about 30 years from her mother, who is played by the woman from the witch, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the wife, the wife from the witch. Um, and Oh, I do like her. Yeah. Katie Dickey. She's really good. And so this girl, this woman decides she gets a message from her, I think saying, come home, you know, we need to try to mend this. And so she, you don't know what her mom did to her back in the day, but it's probably why her behavior is so erratic. She goes back there. And then this this is about the 25, 30 minute mark got really interesting. I I, I could have turned it off at the start because I just I didn't like her. I didn't like the setup. As soon as it gets out there, it felt like it belonged in the same like universe as the movie Men from earlier this year. It's like a rural, mm-hmm. rural, uh, slow burn, weird uh folk horror and it delivers on the folk horror there's a couple beats that are like oh shit they're really going there like weird nudity weird everyone in the town is in on it kind of vibes and she doesn't understand what what is happening and what she you know who she is in relationship to the town she kind of left when she was young that stuff i felt really delivered so i do actually recommend this there there's things to get over as you're watching it but as it went it got more and more interesting as the and it got goopier and goopier as the film went so uh you know this one's on hulu for someone looking for free one and uh i it, it won me over by the end uh, you know to be honest i was i was a tough tough for me to get into it but once i was there it got pretty good so that's called matriarch again another one of these ones just under the radar unless you yeah search for it um and those are my those are my new ones i will say just a personal note uh before we go into here i did something very strange i watched the last two episodes of the walking dead forever 
And the reason I did wow. that is, you know, I watched. You haven't watched that in years. No, it's been about four four seasons, maybe. Basically, the second Andrew Lincoln was out of that show, I tried to keep watching and I couldn't. And I think identification is a big part of art. It's like that is the show. I realized it wasn't Walking Dead. It was that character, the journey in that show. And when that character was gone, I, I just, I think it j- jumped all over the place. Anyway, I left it. I heard the show was wrapping and I was like, you know, I'm actually curious how they're going to wrap this. So I watched the one before it just to get some context. I didn't really like it. I was like, okay, yeah, all right. It's a little too all over the place for me. Uh, but the last episode, Nicotero directed and, and he did a pretty good job. And it was kind of fun to see how some of those storylines were tied up. Uh, of course, I, of course, you find out right after that there's going to be like, you know, three freaking spinoffs. It was such a cheat. Like Walking Dead is going to end, but now there's going to be Walking Dead City, Walking Dead thing. Like, and Andrew Lincoln and Michonne are coming back for one of those spinoffs. And they came in in the last like 30 seconds of the episode. They were in it. Not, not with the rest of the characters. And I will say, I'm not kidding. All the same feelings just came back. And so I was like, it's so interesting how you could be totally burned out on something like, oh, I have no interest. And as soon as I saw those two characters, I was like, okay, I think I would watch whatever they're going to. It's probably a one season thing, like to show what their adventure is, but they're both such great actors. Um, so it was kind of nice in a way to kind of get that closure, even though I've missed the last couple of seasons. It is an incredible, and I was thinking about this for me, it's a big deal. It was the first horror show I did before we met. It was the one before that. This Week in Horror was yeah. right as Walking Dead started. And right before I had my kid. So, and I have an 11 year old in the next room. He wasn't, he didn't exist when Walking Dead first aired. And I was like, that is insane. The show has been going for that long. So it really, it made me realize my entire journey and all of this stuff here has also been at the same oh my gosh. time period as yeah. the show. So, me too. Cause yeah. actually, I was shooting um, Blood and Guts, the TV um, or the web series that we did with Scott Ian. Uh-huh. Um, I was shooting that for the Nerdist while I was pregnant with Marnie. And our third episode, we go to Greg Nicotero's shop in LA and we see him make zombies. Um, yeah, we were doing Killer was, POV during that, I yeah. think, because I remember you going off to do that shit. Yeah, no, it's just, it's it's crazy to think it's been yeah. such a big, and so I, and I bring that up here because it's a perfect segue to what we're actually going to be talking about is cultural impact of the zombie, uh, you know, with, with a great guest, not about Walking Dead, but about other things. So it was, it was a cool closure. Glad I got it. And, you know, maybe the spinoffs will be, I think one of the problems with a show like that, watching this last one, not, not, not character or money it's like you're watching it it got so big it, there's there are so many characters all of them are going to get paychecks all those paychecks are going to get bigger every year so at a certain point you are going to have to call it you're going to have to like oh we can't but we could afford to take two of you and do a spinoff show you know um and i think that it, there's a lesson there because i think it was always at its best at its leanest when there was five or six characters sur- trying to survive it was always the best version of that show once you have 20 like protagonists you know uh it gets a little a little crazy but you know congrats to all of those people involved it's it's a big deal still um but yeah no so our our guest is uh somebody we've wanted to talk to for a long time a, a buddy somebody who's been very supportive of us throughout the years uh and he took his own obsessive journey into zombiedom Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Trick or Treat Studios. For over a decade, Trick or Treat Studios has been the name of horror business, offering high quality masks, 
Screenaculate, replicas, toys, and more. But that's not all. Trick or Treat Studios is your one-stop shop for the horror days. Shop ornaments, wrapping paper, and decor at trickortreatstudios.com. So whether you're looking for the perfect gift for the horror fan in your life or just adding something spooky to your treat, use code POD, that is code P-O-D, and save 10% at trickortreatstudios.com. Some exclusions apply. Offer ends 1231. Tonight's podcast is also brought to you by NordVPN. Are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored of US Netflix, why not take a spin in the UK? Using NordVPN and the click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. Your privacy is a big deal to NordVPN. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so that you never have to worry about your IP or your location getting out. They've doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infective file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. There's literally no risk with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll refund you, and you can pretend the entire situation never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com slash of the dark. Again, that is nord, N-O-R-D, vpn.com slash of the dark to get your subscription started today. Well, I am thrilled to welcome somebody that we've been trying to get on the show for what, like 10, 11 years now um, in various projects, but we finally got him on for an awesome book that's been out for a couple of months. It just came to paperback. Clark Collis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. As they say, longtime listener, first time guest. Oh my gosh, we are thrilled to have you on. So we've known Clark for a long time. He's a writer at EW. He's an amazing journalist in general and just a horror aficionado and just honestly, constantly just kind of singing the praises of horror to the masses. Um, So we love Clark. Well, I try, although (laughs) as someone who does listen to your podcast a lot, I'm, I'm, I'm really just a beginner that the, actually I was down at, um, uh, the horror trivia night the the director uh ted gagan and uh mike gingold oh the one that they do in new york i haven't yeah. gotten to go to that yet and mike actually edited uh the book which was which mm. was really nice of him but i always sort of, i went down there to, to give them a copy of my book uh as a prize and then i always sort of slink out because I, you know i'm not the sort of i mean i do love horror but i'm not someone that could name you know, the dead person in uh, in Halloween Seven. So, so uh, you know, I always slink out before my knowledge is is horribly tested. You know, even though I host the pub horror trivia night here in LA, um, every single time I play, I'm shocked by how like I can create the questions and I know where to go to to create the questions. Um, but as soon as somebody asks me the third person to die in Halloween Seven, I'm like, I, I don't know, like I don't know, she's like dressed as a clown or something, whatevs. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but we're here to talk about your amazing new book, um, which is, is kind of all about Shaun of the Dead. So I got to ask, like, where did the incarnation from the book come from? Like, what was it about Shaun of the Dead that you thought, let's do a whole book? 
Um, it was a couple of things, really. I had done an oral history of Shaun of the Dead for Entertainment Weekly. We did a Halloween issue a few years ago. Um, and so I'd spoken to the director, Edgar Wright, and, and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, uh, and Naira Park, who's their producer, who's sort of like the, the fourth Beatle of the, of the crew. Um, so I had a bit of a head start, but also I uh, grew up in a small town called Wells in, in the southwest of the UK. And that's also the town where Edgar Wright grew up. But if you've seen Hot Fuzz, which is set yes. in this very, very small town, that's the town that I grew up. And in fact, Edgar's a bit younger than me, but we both worked at the same tourist attraction, which was called Wookiee Hole Caves, um, which was like a series of limestone caves with some waxworks that Madame Tussauds didn't want anymore. <laughs> um and so there was always that connection. And so Edgar, uh, when he was like 20, made, I mean, his first, people think Shaun of the Dead is his first film, but it was actually this very sort of micro budget film called A Fistful of a Fistful of Fingers, which was a comedy Western, uh, once again, set in the West country of England. And I was working on a film magazine at the time in the mid nineties and sent someone off to interview Edgar just because I was like, wow, someone from my hometown made a movie. And then I sort of kept an eye on him uh, over time. And, and he did this great sitcom called Spaced. Uh, for oh, Channel it's Form. phenomenal. Yeah. I remember Spaced kind of started making its way over here in the late, it, maybe it was the mid 2000s. I remember I was like fresh out of college living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And it was like some, I remember watching the whole thing during a snowstorm and we had gotten like a bootleg copy from a convention and it was just next level. Um, so I don't even know when it originally aired. I just remember when it kind of trickled over here a little bit. It took a while, um, to, come, it took a while to come out on, on DVD over here, but when it did yeah. come out, it was was like by that time it was such a cult thing that the commentary tracks were by like Edgar and Simon and Nick and Quentin Tarantino and <laughs> Kevin Smith and Eli Roth you know which you wouldn't normally expect on a, yeah. uh, a British uh, sitcom but yeah so I kept an eye on him and then um, you know interviewed them for Hot Fuzz and went on the set of Scott Pilgrim which was Edgar's film went on the set of Baby Driver and sort of had gotten to know them over time uh, and then was in a bit of a low place. And I was like, maybe I can write a book. I've done most of the interviews. I've done like six interviews. I'll just knock off some, you know, cheap and cheer cheery book about what fun it was to make Shaun of the Dead. It'll be like 150 pages. And then I interviewed Edgar and he was like, you know, it was kind of hell making that movie. And sort of he started walking me through how difficult it was to raise the funds and then how difficult it was to convince various key people of his vision. And then, um, well, it wasn't that difficult promoting it in America, but it was a lot of hard work. They sort of took the indie band approach and did like a 30 date tour around the country. Um, and so after that, and Edgar was like, oh, and you've also got to interview X, Y, and Z. And I already knew that I wanted to interview some of the zombies, uh, people who played the zombies. And so what I thought was going to be a, a quick book or a short book, it was quick at the end, but a short book of with like 12 interviews ended up being 450 pages uh, involving me interviewing like 70 people, um, including all sorts of like Greg Nicotero, who wasn't involved with the film, but was became like a big booster and, and did um, zombie makeups when the when the film first premiered in L.A., 
and James Seamus, who wrote, um, who co-wrote uh, Hidden Dragon, Right, but was the head of Focus Features when, when they distributed the movie. Um, so it became quite a, uh, it turned out I didn't have any more time to write it because there was a deadline, but, but yeah, I interviewed and ended up interviewing about 70 people. So it became quite a, quite an epic piece. I, One of the most, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, it's just, I, I read it just in the last two days, actually. I've had it since, I think you were meant to come on a few months ago and it kind of came <laughs> to me and then it, it kind of went to the back of my shelf briefly uh but i kind of inhaled it really it's it was a really quick read and what i really appreciated about it that i wasn't expecting it's the kind of book that when you think about it you're like oh it's just gonna be it's about just this movie and it's so micro that maybe even though i love that movie it might be too micro what i found is instead it was the opposite i found myself almost every experience that he talks about especially in the middle chapters where he's talking about the actual production i could completely relate to having even just made a micro the size right. film because it's the mm-hmm. same above the line below the line creative versus crew it, it, some of those issues and i found it very i, I got really into it. i actually found it very cathartic reading this book because i was like oh this is some of the everyone has these problems these are mm-hmm. you know and and i thought yeah. it was i think the stuff between edgar and the camera was actually very interesting and their different differing viewpoints on the same things uh i just I, I found the whole thing to be like a a great lesson about how to make a movie from start to end Well, it's also that thing that, and you guys must know this, but often the most interesting person on a crew is like the person who does the food or whatever, (laughs) or or they've, 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 you know, it's not the stars of the film necessarily, but it's quite often like crew of just some interesting past. And one of the, I think it was the assistant director was telling me that he'd, with his brother, he'd moved to Texas because they were English. They set up a, a chimney sweeping company and they really lay on like the whole Mary Poppins aspect of it. And they would sort of sell their services to, you know, bored people. They would come in and clean their chimney. And then, you know, he drifted over to Britain and somehow got involved with George Lucas. The next thing he knew, he was directing Samuel L. Jackson, one of the Star Wars movies. But it's just like, I mean, if I was a better writer, I probably wouldn't have included all the chimney sweep stuff because it is incredibly tangential to the actual Shaun of the Dead story. But how fascinating to sort of, to be able to to, to really, you know, dive pretty deep in, into all of these people. Well, yeah, like, all the different people are drawn to things like movies. It's like a traveling circus yeah. and everyone gets together. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'm technically in your book. I don't know if you realize, but I was very thrilled to get to the part with the very specific screening by Ant Timpson in New Zealand. Oh. I was at that screening and I was reading the book going, oh, I remember that. So I was very excited that actually made it into the book. So I, I don't know. It's, it, it, I think this is just for, I think, people out there wondering. I, I felt like it, that somebody maybe made a documentary about Evil Dead, the original Evil Dead. Right. It would be similar, but with different maybe economic size. Well, I, and- it, it was never my intention, but I've had so many people reach out to me saying like that they're at film school and they're finding it very useful, which, you know, I never went to film school. That was definitely not my intention. Um, Someone wrote saying that they've just done a a thesis on Edgar Wright and used my Mm. book and got a first, which really irritated me because I did not get a first when I was a you know, I feel that some of that first should be mine. But But they won't get residuals. Remember that. Yeah. That's true. (laughs) That's true. 
What I found to be kind of most amusing for me was that they had problems selling the horror comedy element of it, um, which I always assumed was a stateside thing. Because like when you're that is that is a big, like, well-known secret in Hollywood is horror comedies are a damn near impossible sell because everybody gets freaked out that like, you know, if you horror, we understand scary, we understand comedy, you mix the two together. And what the fuck is that? I mean, is that even a thing to the point where I don't even say comedy in my pitches? now i'll right. say um horror with dark levity or horror with dark uh, humor sprinkled throughout um and that they were having problems kind of getting people to understand the tone as well that it's not it's not spoofy it's right. not you know over the top humor it's just there's dark humor within the horror and yeah, yeah. and i always assumed that uk was better at that because you guys do it more often. Like I see some of the best horror comedies coming out of the UK. Right. I mean, I mean, I know it's a TV show, but Inside Number Nine, you know, yeah, um, is I mean, great that, at it. That is definitely true. I think horror comedy is hard to pitch around the world, um, but also horror in general in uh, Britain was dead as disco. I mean, you'd had obviously, you know, Hammer in the sixties and seventies, but that had died out by the end of the seventies. And then you've really got. I'm sure I'm going to miss one or two, but you've got Hellraiser, which is obviously amazing um but you know and one or two others but there was no sort of infrastructure to produce horror and as you will remember no one had made a zombie film for like 15 years mm -hmm. which edgar and simon took as a good sign that they could reintroduce it until one day <laughs> simon turned up being like hey you know that movie uh, 28 days later that danny boyle's making it's a zombie movie which then caused edgar because at the time I mean, Danny Boyle's still a huge, hugely talented director now, but at the time this was post-train spotting and Danny Boyle was the British film director. And and the news that he was making a zombie film and that it would be out before theirs caused Edgar just to, like, slam his head into the desk for, uh, for half an hour screaming fuck, basically. I, lo uh, I love how it then, but in the book, I love how you chart that that actually becomes probably ended up being a positive for them because it got zombies back in the consciousness to then mm -hmm. satirize in their film, which I think yes, is great. Yes, yes, absolutely. And as, and as, I mean, Edgar is not, um, Edgar is someone that really, uh, you know, he's, he's very supportive of, 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 you know, film directors in general, but he is quite keen to point out that Shaun of the Dead ultimately grossed more in Britain than 28 <laughs> Days Later as well. He, there is like, I think he would also admit there is a slight competitive streak to him with regards to that. That's funny. And I also love the way you use George Romero. You don't forget Romero. And I think using him kind of as the bookends almost uh, to, yeah. to their story is, is very sweet. Well, those, yeah. yes. I mean, it starts, as you know, it starts with them waiting to hear. Because the first book, they made Shaun of the Dead. It's very, you know, it obeys pretty much all of the Romero rules. Uh, Dawn of the Dead was the film that Edgar and Simon had bonded over. And so the first person they they let they, they wanted to show it to really was George Romero, and they set up this screening. Uh, Universal set up this screening um, at Sanibel Island in Florida, where where George lived at the time, and he had to sit there with a with a Universal security guard in the room in case George Romero tried to pirate it. And Edgar always says, "Well, if anyone's." you know, as a right to pirate short of the dead is George Romero. The, and so the, it's, yeah, the director who got most fucked by his yes. uh, lack of copyright in the yeah. 60s. <laughs> yes. Um, and so there is this, you know, it's that weird journalism thing where it's a bit of a cliffhanger as to whether um, 
George is going to like it or not. And then later in the book, you discover he does. And I almost ended the book. I thought, I mean, it's a sad ending, but but when George died, which was what, five or six years ago now, I'm thinking, yeah. it was Edgar that attended the um, uh, the the posthumous Hollywood star on Hollywood Boulevard ceremony and made this wonderful speech. And I, had, and I was going to close with a, well, I guess it being about George Romero, a suitably slightly bummerish tone of, you know, Edgar giving the speech and then, you know, just noting that these zombies, uh, these fake, these you know, people dressed up as zombies were swaying either side of him. And that is how I was going to end it. And then COVID turned up. Um, <laughs> and suddenly, I mean, certainly if you were living in Britain, like Shaun of the Dead became like a big part of COVID. And in terms how of... How so? Well, in terms of memes, and there was this, and people were... I mean, there's a bit in Shaun of the Dead where they say, actually, I can't remember who it is. I think it's Simon. Says, or Sean says, we'll go down the pub and wait for this all to blow over. And that's the meme that was going around. Yeah. And it got so prevalent that that Edgar and Simon and Nick, I think Simon and Nick actually did a video, in it, but Edgar definitely wrote on Twitter, like, do not go down to the pub. Like, <laughs> like that is the worst thing you could possibly do. Please don't go down to the pub. <laughs> Um, and so that sort of gave me an excuse then a little bit to kind of bring it up to the uh, to the current day. But people, I mean, Shaun of the Dead was definitely one of the films they were showing in cinemas when cinemas reopened, uh, you know, when, when during uh, between COVID waves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and suddenly you're like, well, this is what Britain's, you know, it, it, it was very, a lot of the images from Shaun of the Dead looked eerily familiar once you were living in COVID. Plus... Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are shown relentlessly on British television. Mm. Like, like there's there's one network that might as well be called the Shaun of the Dead Hot Fuzz Network. Um, so <laughs> beloved are they in the UK. So when Edgar and Simon and Nick were making this, did they ever expect this type of reception? Like, did they think they were sitting on a gem or was this kind of a surprise to them that it did beat 28 Days Later and everything? I don't know. I think it's that... They were up against it at every single point um, along the way. And there was never any guarantee that it was going to be released in Britain. And as I say in the book, like um, uh, Edgar convinced Universal Working Title to pay for him to fly to to Austin to show it to a bunch of folks like, um, like, uh, 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 why am I blanking on his name? The Black Phone writer. um, Scott Derrick. Oh, uh, Cargill? Cargo, yes. Yeah. And so yeah. and so they had a screening at um at the Alamo Draft House uh in Austin, and that sort of helped, you know, word get spread. And then uh Focus Features decided to release it. Uh and then they just they just but even you know, right up to the last moment, Edgar wasn't sure it was gonna be released in the UK at all. And there was definitely I mean, I think they knew they had something, but what's interesting is that, like, a lot of the crew didn't think they had anything. That yeah. if you look, I mean, like, but also, I bet there are so many first-time directors that walk on set and want to do a lot of crazy shit. And on Edgar's first day, you know, he did those two oneers in the film. They're long, long oneers um, where Simon's walking down to the uh, to the corner shop and back, and it's like the most complicated shot in the movie and you can imagine like crew members being like who the fuck is this guy who looked about 12 at the time he was very very young looking guy really his first film and even the crew didn't have much a lot of the some of the crew didn't have much faith in it until they had a uh 
their premiere in Leicester Square, or they had a cast and crew screening in Leicester Square, and people were like, "Wow, this is you know this is pretty good." And then, well, and then it a, just took off from that. There's that interesting. The thing I actually thought was very interesting for people who might you know we didn't have they didn't have Edgar Wright movies to go by, right? Not really the right. crew and something he does and that uh, I didn't really necessarily know he did it, but it makes sense that he shoots that you chart in the book. He shoots way more coverage than normal directors because right. he wants to edit like crazy and like jump around a lot. Now, if you don't, if you haven't seen examples of that and you're an experienced right. camera operator, you're going to be like, Oh, well that's a waste of time. That's a waste. And that's, and that's where a lot of that early friction comes from. And I, I found that to be uh, very interesting. Ultimately, honestly, I think this reads like a great underdog story and mm-hmm. I think if somebody was writing a book like this this year, it would be about Terrifier too. It would be yeah. about about a yeah. guy who kept making the same thing for like five years, and suddenly it it took off. And, and you can it's these kind of stories that I think kind of just really inspire people to go, "Hey, it's possible." It's you know, oh, as long as you're uh, passionate and keep going, you know. That is one hundred percent correct. But I was also thinking of the director of. Um... A barbarian, like some oh, yeah. some guy from the white from the most ill ill named sketch troop ever, the whitest kids you know. Who made Miss you know, March? Miss March, which yeah. is a, not you know, a great yeah. thing. He's um, from near where I'm from. It's not a filmmaking place. So yeah, yeah Zach Cragger. We had him on the show a couple of uh, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, that, I thought that. I mean, I like Terrified too as well, but I thought Barbarian was just such a, you know, I mean, it just seems like such a confident film. Um, oh yeah, and, no, it's yeah, Barbarian's really, really classic. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. We also want to hear a little bit about your zombie love, just to, like in terms yeah. of the ones that get you, or the ones you come back to, or whatever. You, we we thought maybe pick us, give us a few titles. Five faves. Well, I will say because uh, I am a I am a big fan of uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. But every time you do a list, and Elric particularly, <laughs> like Elric almost just goes into a speech beforehand, where it'll be now. This isn't the best. This is. This is my personal, personal favorite, and we're only yeah, going to have one director per list, and it's not going to be anything after 1938. Look, or just in case somebody quotes really, me. Elric is crazy about rules, and then he breaks every single one yeah. of them. It's like, yeah, but I'm putting a Twin Peaks episode yeah. on. People here. need to That's... see the parameters so I can shatter them. <laughs> but, but I bring that up because, you know, you're listening to it, and you're thinking, come on, Elric, get on with it. But yeah. the more, like, all week I've been thinking about this, and I, you know, I'm not going to do a speech, but I am like, wow, once you... Once you start thinking about it, I guess there are. I'll get on with it, Clark. Come on. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, I'm not sure any of these are going to be complete surprises to anybody, really. But um, uh, I rewatched The Battery recently. Oh um, gosh! Which I would not have known about without you guys back in the killer POV days. Yeah, that's when I started. Um, Yep. A very low budget movie about two. Watch rewatching, and I'm still not sure quite who they are, but either two baseball fans or baseball players. I think they play on so a team together. Yeah, it's a minor league team, yeah. and I and I had to look this up when the movie came out because I was like, I don't get why it's called the battery. A battery is a nickname for a pitcher and a catcher in baseball, and so it's a minor league baseball team. So yeah, and they're wandering around this gorgeous countryside, but it's you know filled with zombies. Um, but it's uh, essentially about these two guys played by Adam Cronheim and Jeremy Gardner. And they're very chalk and cheese. And Gardner's like the crazy one. Adam Cronheim's, uh, I guess, the sensible one. Although he wanders around with earphones on all the time, which is just, it's so terrifying having someone wandering around the country, a zombie-filled countryside with headphones, unable to hear. Um, 
And on you guys, you know, recommended by you guys. I remember checking it out at the time, and then I had a radio show, and we had those guys on. And and uh, one of my happiest nights of my life was going to a party, a Christmas party at Larry Fessenden's mm. uh, house or apartment. You know, legendary director Larry Fessenden and Jeremy Gardner was there with his uh, <laughs> DP, and we were drinking. And I was like, "Well, this is what it's all about." Which I mean, it isn't what it's all about, but it was a fun night. Um, and I did think, and I rewatched it for this, and I was worried that it was one of those films that in retrospect, I might think, oh, we cut them some slack because they had, you know, they didn't have any money. And, and it's sort mm-hmm. of like, it's it's good. It's good. It's one of those films that, yeah, it's good. But, but but um, you know, yeah, they've overcome and managed to make a reasonable movie and we're bigging it up. And this thing is fantastic. No. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. It looks great. The di- I mean, you remember Gardner, but actually Adam Kronheim um, is great as well. And the relationship is great. And it's got a great story as well. And and you're just, because you're sort of like, man, Jeremy Gardner's really crazy. I think the other guy's right. And as it goes on, it's like he's not right at all. And uh, and again, do a hell of a mess. And I just think it's a, it's just a... It's just a brilliant example of what you can do with with not much money if you're really, really talented. I I have showed that film in so many classes, which I I still I will have students be like, you're showing us like a seven thousand dollar movie in my really expensive USC class. And I'm like, yeah, because when you emerge, you might not have 50 million sitting there. And this is how you do it. This is how you say, I don't need 50 million. This is I can make a film without Hollywood's permission, without anybody. And Jeremy and his team are like perfect examples of that. And they kept doing it. Like every single one of the subsequent things that I saw from Jeremy, I was so impressed by in various capacities as well. I've, I've always been surprised that Hollywood hasn't snapped up Jeremy Gardner to be like, in the same way there was that point where Billy Bob Thornton was in everything, you mm-hmm. know? I Like you would imagine he'd be like an excellent, you know, uh, assistant goon or something, you know, like like a henchman or I mean, not to, I mean, he's a really good actor, but I ju- I'm just always surprised that maybe it, it says a lot about Hollywood that they haven't gone. Oh, his, this guy's his, like a his friends have noticed because he's he has appeared in those roles and all of it, like all his buddy Mickey Keating and all those guys' movies. But yeah. I, I agree with you. I could I could definitely see him um, being good coloring and something. Or or why wasn't he put in The Walking Dead? <laughs> he was shooting yeah. right next to it, and right. there's enough people in that show. So and. I have to say, I saw, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I had the pleasure of watching um, Joe Bagos' new movie, Christmas, uh-huh. Bloody Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and my God, like, you're like two thirds of the way through that movie, and it's so crazy. And you're like, how can this possibly get any crazier? And Jeremy Gardner turns out. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's how it can get a bit crazy. What yeah. is the Jeremy Gardner movie with the fingers, Alric? It's not, you, he didn't. You just said the title. <laughs> Oh, it is called Fingers. fingers. Okay. Fingers. It's still one of my um, favorite indies of the last like few years. It's so funny and weird. Everything is so wrong about yeah. it and you feel bad watching it because it's just like, oh my God, this film is so wrong. But Jeremy Gardner is in it as the wildest hitman ever. Um, and he dances. It, his best performance. That's his best performance. Yeah. He's, it's, it's great. It's really, and again, lo, super low budget. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but that's a great pick uh, to lead us in. Definitely. Okay, hit us with another. Uh, well, again, not a huge surprise. I don't think there are going to be any big surprises, but Return of the Living Dead yeah. Uh, Dan O'Bannon's uh, fabulous movie. You talk about pitching a certain tone, and I don't know how they pitch that because it's got so much crazy stuff going on, and it's got, you know, the punks. And it is like about seven movies crammed into one. But you got the punks in the graveyard, and you got a, you got the the 
the medical supply stuff. And then you've got a lot of sort of stuff about like the hierarchy of the medical supply stuff. And uh, and it's run by Clue Gulliger, who is, you know, the late great Clue Gulliger, who is so fantastic in this movie. Mm. And then you've got this kind of overarching business with the with the general who's just waiting for the call to unleash the nukes when the when the uh you know when the gas is found or whatever and the effects are amazing and it's just it's just really funny and i often think uh i've always wanted some well no i'm not really but i've always wanted somebody to say like shut your mouth if you like your job so that i can go like my job (laughs) um (laughs) And I just think, I can't remember when I saw that. I remember being very, I remember going to the cinema to see uh, Return of the Living Dead 2, which is not that great, in my opinion. No. But then 3, I mean, it really picks up in, yeah. a, in, a, in a totally different, you know, fabulous way. Uh, but mm-hmm. I don't know, the original, I just thought the original is, is, is absolutely terrific. Dan O'Bannon. I remember, I remember my parents, um, they bootlegged every VHS tape they ever rented. And we had a copy of this when I was way too young to be watching it. And I have vivid memories that because you could fit three movies on a single VHS tape if you recorded it a specific way. And it went, it fell right after Sound of Music on the tape because there was no fucking rhyme or reason to what they put on what tape it was like sound of music return of the living dead in terms of endearment that's just the order they rented them in and there they went on the tape and so i remember finishing sound of music when i was really young um which is like a stupid long movie anyway and then it just kept going and um watching return of the living dead which actually i'm guessing was the only other thing on that tape because return uh sound of music is a stupid long movie yeah. but yeah um having i vivid memories of those two watching them together and just being floored by it but i saw that way too young and thought it was amazing and if anyone also- does that triple feature we'll send you a sticker a if sticker. you watch terms for endearment <laughs> after return of the living dead but after sound of music we will send you a sticker that's a hell of a day yeah. right there <laughs> Excellent. Okay, third selection. Well, I can see people being a bit annoyed about this, but uh, I'm going to go for the um, remake of Dawn of the Dead, which I guess I don't really believe in guilty pleasures, but I do always feel Mm -hmm. a little bit guilty watching it because, uh, you know, I know it's running zombies and and, uh, you're not zombies are not supposed to run and so on and so forth. But um, so this is obviously the remake of the Romero classic. And I just think, I just think it's a terrific film. I think it's scary. Um, I mean, the opening title sequence alone, if you remember with the blood and the little Mm -hmm. snippets of news footage, and it's um, written by James Gunn and directed by Zack Snyder. And the more you think about that combination, I just think it's brilliant because James Gunn was the horror fanatic and Dawn of the Dead like was one of his favorite films. And I don't think Zack Snyder... Let me put it this way. I don't think he's interested in the lore of zombies, even though even though, you know, he would go on to to make the recent zombie film. I think he's just interested in like the action and was more than happy for these zombies to run. I think it's got a it's got a great cast. Sarah Polly's in it. Um, Love her. Yeah. And she's going to become relevant again this year, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, Ty Burrell before Modern Family is in it and has that brilliant exchange with Bing Rames when. Bing Rames says, you know, are, are they all dead at the police station or whatever? And Ty Burrell's like, well, dead-ish. I mean, in the sense <laughs> that they, lay, they fell down and then they got up and started eating people. And I think it's a funny script. And um, I think, you know, Snyder handles the action really well. 
I don't really like the ending. I think there's always zombie films do have like a, a ending problem because it is like, well, what do you do? Especially when fast zombies, when you're like, well, they would just take over. Um, but I think that's a real uh, that's a real thrill ride. Mm-hmm. I mean, hard to remake I... the best movie ever. <laughs> I think Dawn of the Dead yeah. like one of the best movies, but it is. It's a really successful because, like the Evil Dead remake, it changed enough. It changed. Yeah. enough to make it really interesting yeah that one i remember enjoying it when it came out and then having other people tell me it's bad and being like but i i had fun yeah. um i was i was a- i was i came out of that like i like what i imagine people who do speed would be feeling let us say um mm-hmm. and i had to go and drink like six pints uh in times square uh just to just to calm the fuck down uh, oh, you went to it. the Times Square theater to yeah, see it. Yeah, it must have been like one of the one of the Forty Second Street ones on. Um, and then I went to that boxing bar just off Times Square, whose name is oh, me. I know that one. I hope they've cleaned up the Times Square theaters. There was one that I went to a couple times because the Fangoria office was actually right on Times Jimmy's, Square. Jimmy's, Park. Jimmy's boxing bar. Jimmy's, Sorry. I remember that place. Yeah. Um, but the Fango office, we were right on Times Square, just off it on Forty Eighth um right off it just over towards hell's kitchen at like 9th and 48th and so i would always go down to times square to see movies and there was one where it was like this outward secret that everyone knew that you didn't leave your purse sitting on the floor because it was such a roach problem and so and you would see things scurrying around like while you were in the movie theater but yet we all still went there and it was like a major chain too it wasn't like a sketch theater so um yeah but I, I hope they've cleaned them up a bit. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it, it, by the time I started going to Times Square, it had all been, you know, they knew I was coming, so they cleaned <laughs> it all up. <laughs> okay, so we're to our fourth one. Um, what do you have? Uh, well, I'm going to have to include Shaun of the Dead uh, here. Of course. Um, um, and I guess I might have put it number one, but there just comes a point where you just don't want to be like the guy that only talks about Shaun of the Dead, I guess. Um it's just, I mean, put it like this. When I when I started writing the book, I assumed, because it's not like I watched the film from beginning to end that much, but people, you know, you interview people who are in the film and then you have to check that, you have to check that what they say is true, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you have to, you have to watch the film for all number of reasons. And I assumed that there would come a point in the writing process where I had had enough of watching Shaun of the Dead. And that never happened. It just never happened. And I always found more things to enjoy about it. And I always found, you know, the sad bits sad and the funny bits funny. And the whole thing is just like, it's just like a miracle that movie happened. I mean, it's the opposite of a miracle in as much as I now know and can walk you through the, you know, a sizable amount of the million things they had to do to get that movie made. But I just think it really, it really stands up. And it, and it's one of, I mean, you talk about horror comedies and I would include Return of the Living Dead in this, but mm-hmm. talk about great horror comedies. It's not a long list. You know, you've got your uh, uh, American Werewolf, Brain Dead, and, uh, you know, Shaun of the Dead, one or two others. But, but you know, when, when, when horror comedy is done, uh, Reanimator, when horror mm-hmm. comedy is done right, I mean, it, there's few things better than that. Yeah. Okay, so number one zombie film. All right, so this is probably where I should give my speech, but but I'm going to choose uh, Day of the Dead, George Romero's Day of the Dead. Um, I'm really choosing all of 
the Romero films, certainly the original trilogy. Although I would, I mean, Land of the Dead, I enjoy it. And actually the last two, I mean, Diary of the Dead, I think has, has moments, um, even the last one. But uh, Day of the Dead was sort of the first one, I think, that I saw. And it's, I mean, it's just great, but it's, I, I was terrified by it. And I was an adult person. I was teaching. I was in a, at a teaching job by the time I saw it, uh, which is how old I am. But I had nightmares and just the idea of them being in this bunker with like this whole other area where they're just keeping a bunch of zombies and they can't really get out very easily. And they got zombies down the road and they got this lunatic scientist who's, you know, trying to teach Bob the greatest zombie ever how to read Stephen King books and operate the phone. And uh, Rhodes is such a great um, uh, almost you know, great Bond villain, Captain Rhodes of, mm -hmm. of, of of the venture. And, and you know, a lot of the characters are great. And it's just, I just think it's terrific. And I, I mean, yeah, I would, you know, if someone wanted to, to replace it with Romero's Dawn of the Dead, that would be great. That would be fine by me. Um, but I just really like uh, uh, Day of the Dead. Nicotero is there right at the start, you know. Um, it's more downbeat in tone. Like yeah. like Dawn, you can kind of have fun with in a sense at, at times, but I would say it's probably the most influential uh, zombie film on modern culture because when I watch Walking Dead, which is arguably the most influential thing in the last decade, it um, that's the one that's riffing in my opinion. It's not the other two; it's yeah. that one. The tone, the the kind of bleakness, the, the even the color palette, and always holding up in these kind of facilities, you know. And so I and Nicotero probably is. Uh, influence i think i think it's a very influential film and i think it, it's got some humor in there that you have to watch it more than once to to get yeah. and the weird thing is that i don't know who controls the rights to that title but they keep on making it i know i mean the, the recent tv series had its moments but but they keep on making dawn of the De day of the dead properties but they're not mm -hmm. like they they're totally different to the film. You're like the film. You're in a base. You're in a you're in a bunker with zombies. I don't, honestly know what could be more terrifying slash actually affordable than that. Mm, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, the original is. Uh, and I interviewed Romero a few times, and he was. I mean, part of my love for zombies. I was thinking why I love zombies films so much. And part of it is George Romero. I think that he was a a hugely talented director. When you talk about seventies directors, his name never comes up, but it. It certainly should, you know, great 70s directors. But also, I mean, what a lovable guy. What a great guy. One, the first time I interviewed him, it was, I, I was pitching him on, I worked for a magazine where we had, we got film directors to do like a list of, of favorite things, but it was always unusual favorite things. So it was like Carpenter's favorite Westerns. The Coen brothers wanted to do their favorite underwear scenes for some reason. It was very funny. And then Romero wanted to do, uh, terrible movies I love. Um, and they were all like sort of... I love that. They were all like 50s pirate movies. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> like The Room or anything like that. It was all like dodgy melodramas and overwrought <laughs> costume stuff. Very little of which I heard, but I had him on the phone for an hour and he was just like telling me the plots of all these old movies that he'd watched as a kid. And, you know, and, and you mentioned earlier, Elric, that they got stiffed out of all the money for Night of the Living Dead. Now, admittedly, he got a career out of it, unlike maybe some of his colleagues. But, but you know, he never seemed to really mind that. And, and he was always seemed like always seemed like a very easygoing guy. But mm -hmm. I mean, what a talent when you look at the different, you know, the, the long list, not just the zombie films, but the long list of uh, 
films he made. Sorry, I'm telling the hosts of Colors of the Dark about this exciting director called George Romero, and now I feel like a but, but But I agree with you, not just as a horror show. I think he's one of the best mm-hmm. directors, because I look at Martin and um, just recently kind of have had a reappraisal uh, for myself of Knight Riders. I, I, I think that movie feels so relevant now. And I, I as, a ki- as a kid, that. I didn't like it. I, I was like bored because it felt like people playing dress up at the medieval ball. But when I watched it now, I was like, Jesus Christ, this just felt like palpable. And so Romero always seemed to be about 20 years ahead of things, you know? All I can recall from Knight Rider is Savini's like sweet ass cod piece. Yeah. I need to rewatch it. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I don't have much to back it. Yeah. Just as a final note on Day of the Dead, and I'm sure you know this story, but this was going to be like the... Cecil B. DeMille of zombie movies and he was promised a whole load of money and it was going to be armies of zombies that they trained above ground and then like a month before they shoot he's told oh no you haven't got like 12 million dollars you've got five million dollars can you still make a movie and he's like all right you know yeah let's do it and to have like to basically have the rug rug, the rug the rug pulled under pulled out from under you like that and still come up with a with a real horror classic I mean yeah you know what he's doing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think Elric and I have um, at least one deep cut each that we were going to throw out. Elric, do you have a deep cut? Oh, oh, yeah, I'll throw a quick one out. I picked a recent one just in case you missed it uh, or if anyone missed it. I did talk about it years ago, but it was, it's really fun. I think for people who like the 28 Days Later vibe, it's pretty close. That's called, uh, it's a French uh, horror film called The Night Eats the World from 2018. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, and this one just moves. It's I, I found it's got the lead actor um, at the time. I didn't realize, but he's the guy uh, from Worst Person in the World uh, from last year. He was in all the films from that director. His name's uh, Anders Danielson Lee, I think, and also Dennis Levant from Bo Travai and stuff. And it's it's basically some dude broken up with some girl. He, I, she's broken up with him. He's bummed. He wants his tapes back. For, uh, he's a musician. He wants some tapes back. He goes to her house at a party. She treats him like shit. He's kind of feeling depressed, so he goes into some room and kind of just like passes out. And when he wakes up, everyone's fucking dead. There's red everywhere. There's Everything's abandoned. He looks outside and realizes the entire city, everything's gone, and everyone is a zombie, and he locks himself up in this building and just has to survive. And it's about kind of the isolation and, and of, of that situation. And then once he starts kind of exploring the world, they become much more like the 28 days mm-hmm. later. And, it, and there's a couple sequences in this. There's a silent zombie stuck in an elevator, one of those elevators that with, before the door closes, the inner part. And so he, he's just there for days and days, and they they strike up almost a relationship, even though this is the silent, played by Dennis Levant, who's really one of the great kind of silent actors in a sense. Uh, this movie just really struck me as, I hadn't heard nothing about it when it came out. It was just a little icon on the internet, just like all movies seem to be these days, uh, the way it was delivered. And, you know, you watch it, and then you're surprised how well made it is. So I would put that on people's radar. I think it's pretty easy to see. The one that I will do, and by the way, that one is really good and um kind of heavy. This one is not. So this one, I know I've talked about this on our Patreon show, mm. Deep Cuts. I don't think I've ever mentioned this on um, Colors of the Dark before. And this is 1991's The Boneyard. Mm. Um, this one was like near impossible to find for a really long time. This is one of those that like you would have to get it on VHS. And I, I believe there is a much nicer Blu-ray and it's probably streaming on Amazon at this point. Um, But for a long time, this was really hard to find. The setup of this one, 
is that um and it's such a an odd protagonist for the time period a depressed psychic who is an older woman she's definitely um an older woman who is not married she is kind of the furthest person that you could picture from a protagonist in the 90s um but she is working with a police detective played by Ed Nelson um and they are investigating this incredibly gross child murder case when they happen it connects them back to a mortuary and what they find is that the funeral home director has been holding on to these um they look like mummified corpses but they're actually demons and um as they take him away as he's brought up on murder charges and arrested he can no longer feed these demons and so these like ghouls awake and start like hunting down people um and what most people remember there is a very it's a fun scene um very over the top mrs uh phyllis diller is in it playing a character named mrs poop and plats and um her dog she has a poodle and it gets turned into a zombie and that is the scene that everybody remembers that scene is really over the top and silly the movie actually has some really scary sequences in it as well so even though it does have those over the top kind of 90s humor to it it does have some serious scares as well um and that one is the boneyard just in general kind of a wild little movie that does not necessarily mesh with the time period that it came out in I think that little dog's on the cover, and that's probably what stopped me from watching it. It <laughs> so is. Everybody now that you tell me, I'll watch dog, it. And they're like, silly dog. Yeah. And that is, it's a wild scene. I mean, Phyllis Diller is wild in that scene. Phyllis Diller does not try to be like pretty or that's kind of the theme of the movie is no one is trying to be Hollywood in it. It's very just kind of like sweaty adult psychic woman older depressed like it's not a pleasant protagonist but somehow the movie is pleasant in itself um and it does not feel like anything we were doing in the late 80s early 90s but it's a fun little flick that is the boneyard from 1991 happy hunting for that one and uh so clark people can find you've got red on you i assume everywhere is there anywhere you'd particularly point them to on that you know you usually at this point say all good bookstores, but I've been in some good bookstores <laughs> recently with a sad face because I couldn't find the book. But if you go on, I mean, if you go on the internet, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Highest rec. Really good job. Really. I'm really glad I liked it so much. It's always, it's always harder when people with bo- guests with books, not movies, obviously it's a bigger commitment, uh, but this is a great one. So congrats. No, I really, thank I really, you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Clark. And so what's the next book? I know. Once you get that book bug, you're in. You're yeah. in. So I know you're into another one now. I'm definitely working on something which is either, I think, going to be pretty good or a complete waste of like two years of my life. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'll, we'll see. I don't, I'm That's not how sure. I feel about every project. <laughs> um, film, book, otherwise. But, so I have, but, but doing it, I, I find the process of, uh, I mean, unlike making films, I can do it all on my computer to a degree. So so I can, even if it's never published, it'll make me happy having written it. So I don't mean to be mysterious. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm basically writing another sort of film book, but but I think it may be bigger than my arms, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm having trouble that, putting my arms around it. 
It's okay. It's okay. No, I, I completely get it. I've been, I have a book coming out um, a number of years down the road because publishing is also a very slow beast I've discovered. Um, but yeah, so, and once I got the bug, it was immediately like, wait, I don't need anybody's permission. I can just sit down and fucking write this. I don't have to wait for anybody to give me money. Let's just do this. So yeah, it was nice. I should but... say just a little bit of insight into my job. So you say I, I work in Entertainment Weekly magazine and I saw... Uh, Rebecca, your films, uh, film Glorious, which, you know, I absolutely loved. And then, and so we're on Slack, which is how, you know, certainly we communicate. And I'm like, there's this film coming out. I really like it. Um, it's a, it's about a demon that, that communicates through a glory hole. And they're like, sold. Because my, my film editor is quite, a, you know, a horror nut. And he's like, sold. And I'm like, but we can't put glory hole in the title, right? In like the headline, <laughs> which he said, if we can't put glory hole in the headline, why the fuck are we covering it? You know, like, <laughs> like what, like that's that, as far as he was concerned, was the selling point. And I made him, I said, look, great. I mean, that's great. I'm, I'm happy. And then I, you know, I did, we spoke to you, Rebecca, and, and, you know, you were good enough to let us premiere the trailer. But I said, look, I said to my editor, if one of us is going to get fired over putting glory hole in the headline of, of this article, it is not going to be me. And I want you to know <laughs> that. Uh, so that's how that's how that happened. Oh, I, I specifically remember that phone interview for the trailer because we did that while I was driving on the way up to Niagara Falls. And I was in the back of a camper driving through these little like Pennsylvania hamlets as we're like behind like um, carton buggies of like Amish country and things like that. It was an amazing ride. But I remember that interview um, and being moving while doing it. But yeah, thank you so much for doing that, by the way. Oh, and thank you so so much for coming on our show this week. So yes, definitely pick up something red on you. And um, yeah, it makes for some amazing holiday reading. And Elric, what do we have going on next show? Oh, well, it will be our last show of the year and we will be counting down our top 10 horror films of the year. I'm, a tradition. A tradition. I am a little flummoxed by this one because I got to say, there's been some years that we have done this 11, 12 years running now where I have been like cobbling together my list, struggling to come up with 10 that I really think deserve to be on it this year. I'm like already struggling. I have to like, like figure out how to whittle it down. Yeah, no, I think I think I would have about 23 or 24 contenders. Mm -hmm. I have, I, I bet there would be something at about 18 that could be, in the top two or three of other years. That's how good yep. a year this is. This is a standout year for horror and not a standout year for movies. I I, I would I couldn't even do a top 10 right now of non-horror movies mm -hmm. because I've just found stuff, you know, there's some good films, but just nowhere near the number of good films. And I think that's partly why horror has done so well this year um, yeah. at the box office. But yeah, no, it'd be very interesting. I, I And I think it will be interesting to see what hits that number one spot. And we, and we tend to I'll, I'll usually have quite a few different ones. So I'll be curious yeah. if that stands this year. I could see maybe more in common this year, but we'll see. Excellent. So that'll be our next Colors of the Dark. And you can always find us on Patreon. And even though that Colors of the Dark show will be our last one um, for this year, we're taking chunks of December off. Our Patreon show will be continuing during December. So if you get really lonely for us, you can always find us over at Deep Cuts. Um, thank you guys so much for listening tonight. Have a fantastic turkey day.
The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 